Welcome to A Little Anarchy, the show where two cool kids posing as comic book aficionados break down the structures and unstructures of geekdom in the world of films and what really makes them tick. My name's Meredith, co-host number one. I'm John Lampus. I'm co-host number two. And we have a great show this week. First, we'll tackle our topic of the week, Wonder Woman. Then, reader responses in the feed. And finally, our listeners' favorite segment, because it means we're shutting up soon, Comically Irrelevant. Hey, okay, everyone. As you can tell, the person who just spoke is not Ian. That is because Ian is in Lithuania right now, hanging out with his family, guess, like, chilling at his great 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 grandparents lithuanian homes you know i don't i don't really know what he's doing over there but he sends somewhat he's lithuanian royalty so apparently he has to go back every few years just like what isn't that the plot of the princess diaries too sort of yeah okay cool cool (laughs) he's living out the princess diaries lucky with chris prime with oh crap there's a segue (laughs) if i've ever heard one so everyone today we have the privilege to be joined by the fantabulous that's not a word, but I've heard it before. Uh, Meredith Miller, who is our guest host today, subbing for Ian. We've had guests before, but never guest hosts. Meredith, thank you again so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. And I appreciate the descriptor of fantabulous, but I prefer wondrous. Oh, there's <laughs> a second segue. <laughs> I'm just really excited to talk about today's topic. I am too. So obviously everyone today, we are talking all about Wonder Woman. I thought it would be awesome for Meredith to come on the show to guest host for Ian to talk about this because she has been super excited for this movie forever. She's always been a big Wonder Woman fan. She's um, a girl, which is important to not just have this whole thing, uh, especially a movie like this, mansplained. Uh, so Meredith, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Well, um, we're talking about the Batman series. I'm just kidding. We are going to be talking about uh, Wonder Woman and how it presents female and male gender roles, especially in such an important movie like this. It not only is it important to see how it's received by audiences, but it's also an interesting way of telling a story about men and women because we've never had a blockbuster superhero movie that focuses around a woman that has been this important and this huge. Yeah, absolutely. One, I, a lot of people are saying this is the first female superhero movie, and that is not true, as much as I think it'd be cool if it was, but then also kind of sad. We did have, before this, we had Supergirl, Elektra, and um, Catwoman, all of which were terrible. But, so, it is really And also ni- under-budgeted. Very under-budgeted. So, it's super excited that we're getting a female-led superhero film in the you know, ever since the superhero movie boom. And I think it raises so many important questions. So let's let's dive in. Meredith, take it away. Okay. So one thing that I found very interesting about this story is how Wonder Woman herself is presented. Um, mm-hmm. She is a character who has lived in many different forms since 1940s. And um, she's gone through many different um, versions in the comics, especially changing based on what's going on in real life. So to see modern day Wonder Woman and see how she's presented is is very interesting to reflect what is happening in our own gender politics. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that 
one of the most compelling things about her character was that not only was she a super strong, badass female who was kicking butt all over the place, but she had a level of empathy and a level of um, concern for others that drove her entire character's arc. Mm -hmm. And that is important because it reflects the power of traditionally female gender roles. Often when a female character is presented as strong, they're presented as strong in the way that a male would be presented as strong, where they get angry and that's what drives them. They, you know, are out for revenge or something where it's just plopping a female character into a male type of role. Yeah. Which is perfectly fine, but it implies that the only way to build strength in a person is through traditional male personality traits. Whereas it's important to show that both male and female personality traits that we expect from these genders are powerful in different ways and can be used powerfully. Yeah, I definitely agree. And for me, that was really striking. Besides not having really seen a superhero movie like that, where, you know, this love and empathy, which I think really fits well in the setting of war, uh, her kind of championing the cause that it's not about winning the war, it's about stopping the war, stopping the war from continuing. But also, I think those those stuck out to me a lot in how at odds they are with the really dour tone of the previous uh, DC Extended Universe movies, like... I've been rewatching clips from Batman v Superman and everyone who listens to this podcast knows I was just so, so disappointed in so many ways. Um, There's like no hope in that movie anywhere. And people are always like, well, what about the Dark Knight and Batman Begins? Those are dark. And I'm like, yes, those went to dark places, but also everything they do in the Dark Knight in the dark tone is in pursuit of light and in pursuit of hope, which keeps the movie from being too like, oh my God, we get it. It's all, they always reframe it around like the Joker can't tear us down. He can't do this. Gotham just showed you it's people are ready to believe in good, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so we've basically seen hope in those ways in DC movies before. Um, But I think a lot of people, in a lot of directors, a lot of studios stray away from the idea of like hope and love in superhero movies because it seems too cheesy or too not masculine enough, like you said. And for me, it was the the big success of Wonder Woman for me was how they managed to make hope and love a real core part of her character and the driving force of this movie, again, easier in a war setting, but they did it in a way that didn't feel like we're going to defeat everyone, the bad guy with love. And if it didn't feel cheesy, it didn't feel unearned. It didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like the inclusion of love made anything less real or less um, high stakes. The drama and the seriousness of the movie were still intact and it framed love and empathy in a really um, powerful way. Well, and what I find interesting is um, to me, it felt like the ideas of empathy and the ideas of love were played with in two different ways in this movie. Mm -hmm. I felt like she was driven the entire movie by empathy. She was driven by this idea of, oh no, Ares is killing all or hurting and poisoning all of these humans they're normally such good people um and i need to help them and that was her simplistic understanding from a very young age of Mm -hmm. what the situation was once she enters into the human world she's 
you know, continually trying to figure out why it's more complicated in nature than it is, but she's still driven by this empathy. Mm -hmm. She sees that woman from Veld who, who is saying that everyone's being, um, enslaved and, and she says, you know, I need to do this. I don't care about our mission anymore. This is what I need to do. And so she goes into no man's land and that's what drives her in that moment. And it, it builds such a powerful scene. But one thing that I think she really learns from Steve is the concept of love and how it is a stronger motivating force for humans than their desires to, you know, um, gain power or money or, you know, all of the other reasons that you might be um, going to war that that Ares is talking about. Ares is saying, look at these humans. They chose this. I didn't tell them to do anything. I just showed them how. Yeah. But they chose these things. And it wasn't until she saw Steve's sacrifice for people and to prove to himself that he was doing the right thing and trying to help others and also his love for Diana that drove him to sacrifice himself. And it wasn't until that point, she was losing up until that point mm -hmm. with Ares. She was like, you're right. These humans don't deserve me, as my mom said. And uh, she was definitely they... tempted by those ideas. I don't know. Did Absolutely. she ever pull out and say like, oh, you're right? Or did it's or is well, it more? <laughs> so one thing that I really saw in Gal Gadot's acting is that, um, in the scene where Ares shows her what the earth would look like without human interaction. And it's, and it's luscious and beautiful. And it finally brings color back for the first time since Themyscira. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's beautiful. And she closes her eyes and breathes in the air. And she, for a moment, she feels the relief of, mm -hmm. uh, and the lack of tension of it's not complicated anymore. And it's not, yeah difficult and there aren't these warring parts of people that are um causing this conflict in the world um and you know it's not the hideous london that she didn't respond well to mm -hmm. um and so i could see in that moment that she wanted she wavered in her ideas and she wasn't sure and i think that was why she was losing was because she she was having that battle within herself of why why should I save these mm -hmm. people? My mom said that they weren't worthy of me. And, you know, over and over again, I've seen these decisions that don't seem to make sense to me based on what I understand. And it wasn't until she saw Steve make that sacrifice that she realized, oh, okay, it's it's both it's it's all of these ideas but the most powerful of the, these ideas and the most genuine and important thing to save about humans is their capacity to love yeah i definitely agree and i think it's good that we see that from the beginning with her as a child we get all those scenes we see her mom telling her the story of this is what aries did and this is why love you know is better than that this is why empathy love kindness all that stuff this is why that's all good and we get it really well framed through her childhood. And for me, it was comforting to see that, you know, I think it would have been, and what I kind of expected was, okay, she's going to have all this love and stuff. She's going to 
go to man's world and it's gonna her sense of love is gonna like be changed like right before the in the before the no man's land sequence i thought it was just gonna be that hard like can't we help them it's like no we have to go on blah 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 and she was gonna have to wrestle with it there i like that they had her wrestle with that in the battle and it led up to it but i was expecting her main growth to come through disillusionment which would have honestly i think been the path of like the previous dceu just like her being disillusioned by war and whatnot and not having her reconcile that stuff by the end because that's what i think was a big the big thematic um the thematic power of this movie that's where that came through was where we still had this naivety is that how you pronounce it naivety naivete where we still had this i think both work well she still had this very naive sense of justice and she was able to follow through on that and it still ended up being the right thing to do she just had to reframe it in the context of okay what is man what is this world and blah 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 recognizing that that battle between good and evil it's with it's not just aries and you know her it's not just two sides it's not it's not as simple as those two sides like everyone has that battle within them and for me her recognizing that was her true growth but it was also in a way that wasn't just as simple as all men are evil which we which we think she might go down in which they kind of set up right before the third act with steve saying no blah blah, blah or i've done stuff so for me it was really great to see that they didn't one they didn't cast off the idea of oh love's just you know that's too simple or, you know war is hard and you have to do gray morally wrong things that was implied with steve enough and that was good and for me it was really satisfying to have her go through this you know journey and seeing the terrors of war and still having that sense of love intact by the end of it and having that be the thing that made her win. Absolutely. And I like that Steve is clearly having that fight within himself. Yeah. Um, which she gets to see him dealing with that regularly. And they didn't confine that to like one dumb scene or whatever, or just like a little moment to like, they didn't spell it out for the audience mm-hmm. in a like heavy handed way. We, he talks about it more than once. It's implied. We're hearing it from, uh, chief when he says his people did that to me or whatever it's not they they really thoroughly the 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 conflict between love and power and all that stuff is really present throughout the movie and it's in a lot of different forms so i liked that patty jenkins and you know the screenwriters decided hey if we're gonna commit you know it's really easy to just try and paint your heroes either one way or another but seeing that struggle with steve um i thought was the best way plot wise for her to to as kind of a through way or a through line for her to grapple with those to see the the struggle that man has to go back and forth through that stuff and i feel like because the movie really played with those elements of of human capacity to cause harm and to love um it it kind of explains what some people are calling a plot hole at the end of the movie. Because if Ares has died, why is there World War II? Yeah. Except for, of course, there's World War II because this is still true of humans. Yeah. Like, Dr. Poison is still going to probably go poison people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I think there's definitely some... The idea of World War II is something I think people are hoping will be addressed and I know a lot of people are hoping that the sequel would take place in World War II. We do know it's being set in present day, and I feel like it would just be too much of a repeat. But I'm excited that the sequel is going to make her uh, grapple with a very different setting and even a more a more fractured like moral landscape where there's even more mm-hmm. shades of gray. And 
you know, all these other, other different colors that she doesn't know how to interpret quite yet. So I totally agree with that. Speaking of which, so I thought it was a stroke of genius that they chose to tell this story in World War One. Yeah. Not only because World War Two has a tendency, tendency to be overtold. And in, First Avenger, Captain America. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it would be too close to Captain America. And also just in general, like we, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I watched a commercial for a World War Two movie. <laughs> while I was waiting to see Wonder Woman. Um, but what is brilliant is that World War II is in many ways presented as a very simple war. Mm -hmm. um, it was very deadly and dramatic, but it's the perfect story for Captain America. It's the perfect story for, you know, we were punching the Nazis and the Nazis were clearly the bad guys. So what's nice about World War II is that it is very simple to tell that story of, of you know, we're going to punch Nazis. Nazis are clearly the bad mm -hmm. guys. It's very obvious right and wrong. You know, we get to be the good guys without any conflict, without any gray area. Yeah. Versus World War One is such a shit show. And it's such a, a confusing and we don't really understand like really why we got into it. Like a guy got assassinated and that means that all of us have to go to war. How does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And it was all just about allies and this this excitement about the fact that we had new weaponry and so then we wanted to use that weaponry. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it didn't make a lot of sense as to why this many people had to die. Yeah. So it was the perfect war to examine this idea, these ideas of, of why is it that we were doing this? Are we the good guys? Are we the bad guys? Steve's challenge in this movie makes complete sense in the context yeah. of World War One. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think had she been put in World War Two, this idea of, like you said, like being morally gray... Uh, I think she would have had a much easier time. We would have lost a big chunk of her arc in that she would have just been like, yes, these are the bad guys. Okay, they are, you know, they're putting people in concentration camps. They're killing people because of who they are, et cetera, et cetera. It would have been too easy. It would have been, I'm, I'm not a physical battle, but it would have been way too easy of a like uh, character uh, mental battle for her because it would have just been very clear. Yep, bad guys. Okay, I go do that. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> Honestly, my favorite parts of the movie are like, with Samir, Chief, and uh, Charlie, and that little um, merry band. Uh, one, because I just think they're the Howling Commandos if the Howling Commandos were, like, poignant. I think Chief's point about, like, who killed, you know, Diane asks him, who killed your people? And he points to uh, Steve and said, his people. And just in that, you know, it's not, in no way is that conflict boiled down to, into you killed my people, so I don't like you. He's still working with Steve. It's, you know, he recognizes that he comes from, he has a, he comes from, uh, you know, some pretty terrible history, but I think we just see the morally gray aspects of all of this pretty much everywhere throughout the movie, um, except, I would argue, and what is probably my, you know, probably my biggest disappointment, uh, General Lutendorf, um, Danny Houston's character, who I get that the whole point was like the switcheroo where like, you know, oh, it turns out he's not Ares, and Ares himself had some cool dialogue and made a lot of cool points and whatnot, but Lutendorf... I get they were framing him as like, oh, he's Diana's enemy and she, he just needs to be like two dimensional for her to realize it's not really him, which, uh, but for me, what, what do you think about this, Meredith? Because I'm struggling with what I thought about this because I understand 
that it, for me it was like satisfying to see like oh i'm glad that aries is more complicated than just i am a bad guy who are you and like all that and all that overdone acting but for me i just found i get we needed a main bad guy and i get we needed to something something to rally against uh to move the plot forward on the enemy side but i still just found myself kind of like meh just kind of take him or leave him with that what do you think so I'm wondering because I felt similarly about Doctor Poison. I didn't see. Ooh, see, because I like—I kind of liked her. I liked her, but I didn't think that she um, had any like complicated nature of, of yeah. battling in that same area. For me, I just liked seeing a sadistic woman <laughs> like that. Yeah, well, like sure, actually, yeah. like as simple as it was, like oh, she's not yeah, like she was a little messed up in the head. Yeah, and in and in the face. <laughs> So I agree. I don't think that the general was presented as very complicated, especially when trying to um, deal with these ideas of, of am I a good guy or am I a bad guy? He was mm-hmm. pretty clearly a comic book standard bad guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, he was a real person who yeah. actually did a lot of these things. Um, and then Dr. Poison, I, I think the same thing. She was interesting and she was malicious, but she was never complicated in that na- notion. She clearly had the thirst for hurting yeah. people. Um, but I wasn't bothered by that because of the decision to make Ares Sir Patrick because that helped to dev- to prove... Steve's argument that he wasn't sure that he was the good guy and that on both sides, you've got people who are making terrible, horrible decisions that are violent and absent of compassion for other humans. Yeah, I guess I'm just, and I I recognize that and I recognize it for me, this is kind of like almost a microcosm of the standard Marvel movie villain where like, you know, I love Guardians of the Galaxy, but Ronan is like, you know, pretty clearly just like very two dimensional. Um, and they, he kind of needed to be because the guardians needed something to rally against. And the depth of that movie comes through their interactions with each other, uh, in the world they live in rather than with Ronan directly. So I understand the idea of having the villain be more of a force and more of a plot point than an actual compelling character. But I guess I was just, for me, like Ludendorff was so two dimensional that like, you know, I saw the reveal coming pretty, pretty far away. And I, again, I still don't get why he was sniffing all that gas or whatnot. I didn't, that, that was a plot because point. Because he's that, an old man who's afraid of dying. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But I guess I was just, um, I like that there was some nuance to uh, Ares, specifically in the whole thing. It's like, look, they like destroyed the world. Like, look how gross the world is playing on. Again, like you said, the point, uh, big point in the trailer is where they, he said, this is London. And she's like, it's hideous. Uh, and so that was that was cool. I like that. I always thought it would have made sense, like, had the god of, like, Earth and prosperity become, like, the god of war or something. Like, that's just, like, that wasn't the plot point in the movie, but it felt like that, it felt kind of similarly in that vein of, like, a, not just, I am evil, blah, 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 I like death, but I think this choice by Zeus and my father was a bad decision, and framing it not as I want to rule over everyone, but framing it as I want to restore the beauty to the world, whether or not that was actually what he wanted to do. I still think it was pretty much power, but because he framed it that way, even just to Diana, he felt more nuanced. And I just felt that I wanted something more with Ludendorff because I just felt like after like the first two or three times I had seen him, I was like, 
okay, what are you going to do this time? Oh, you're just going to be bad again. And I mean, it was fine, but I guess he was just a part of the movie that fell flat for me. But I understand uh, why, sort of, in that they saved all the real depth for the real villain. But, you know, that that just might be one of the things you have to take with it. I did, I actually really liked Dr. Poison, frankly, if for no other reason than just to see like a really malicious, like, uh, woman like on screen who was really powerful and really scary i loved the scene of her like throwing the um where she opens up they open up the war room and she just like bowls a strike with her like little grenade thing and just kills everyone i thought that was really cool and i would have loved to seen more of her and maybe even had her take over some of Ludendorff's scenes because even if it was just because she was a woman she felt more compelling to me than Ludendorff especially just because we get that with her and Chris Pine that interplay of when he's like kind of swooing her trying to seduce her whatever it just felt there was a little more depth to her in that regard I do wonder if the movie suggests that these characters could be more complicated the Mm -hmm. the bad guy characters Dr. Poison um especially because Diana decides to save her mm-hmm. because because the decision is there's more to this person than you think and therefore they don't deserve to die. Yeah, which is interesting because Wonder Woman is like one of the characters that is totally fine with killing her enemies. So it was kind of interesting to see her spare Dr. Poison in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I guess. I do worry that that's going to come back to bite her. Yeah, um, since the movie is going to be set in America, the sequel is going to be set in America, I doubt we're going to see much more of her. But I guess I just Not would have juggled those. Oh, okay, I'm, that's just dumb, in my opinion. Oh, you look I just mean, that's like comic her. Books. Yeah, but it's dumb. It's dumb, in my opinion. Oh, wow. You know, like <laughs> if she's your... No, that's dumb. That's I just, I guess, <laughs> kind of circling back, I guess I just wish those characters were juggled uh, slightly differently, whether like um, Dr. Poison had been the one with the political power as well, though I know the idea of, you know, a woman leading um, the German army in World War One not really accurate. Uh, I think there could have been some more. I, I would have handled those just guys a little bit differently, but I did like that uh, the thematic uh, conflict between her and Ares that those two kind of left open. They didn't, they didn't, uh, because they didn't have a very nuanced conflict with Wonder Woman, they left that for Ares, essentially, to kind of take over that role. So, fine, but I was kind of like, meh, meh, meh. Now, I would like to go back to the team for a second, because yeah. I found them to be very fascinating, and um, one of my favorite things about them was that when we're for- first presented to the three characters, they're set up similar to any kind of team you know you've got your killer and your liar and your traitor and they're gonna be our squad that's gonna be like going in behind enemy lines it's a classic action movie trope to get all of these people and their roles together um Mm -hmm. and you meet them and they're in a bar and they're fighting and what you know it or or womanizing and it's a classic presentation of of a trope Mm -hmm. of a male action hero trope but as soon as the journey starts, they become more complicated. Not only do they come, yeah. become more complicated, which helps Diana grapple with this idea of people are more complicated than you think they are. Well, I feel like they deconstruct a bit of the stereotypical masculinity, the mm-hmm. masculinity of these of those tropes of mm-hmm. the smuggler, the thief, the liar. Yeah, and and you know Charlie 
is presented as a killer, but he can't kill. And Samir is presented as a liar, but he's actually just has a passion for acting. And Chief is presented as a traitor, but how can you be a traitor if you don't have a home? Mm-hmm. You know, he is he is selling to both sides of this war, but that's only because he doesn't really have a, a side to be on. Yeah. And all of these men are showing vulnerabilities. And and that is super important to show, um, to show male characters to be able to have these vulnerabilities and still be able to be effective or a good part of the team. Mm-hmm. Another thing I found really beautiful about these characters is how they interacted with Diana. Um, Charlie feels after after the first fight that they're all in at No Man's Land, he feels like he didn't help at all and he wants to leave because he's not helping at all he Mm -hmm. couldn't he couldn't kill anyone so he's like i i need to go and she tells him that they're gonna miss his singing and so Mm -hmm. he joins the team because he wants to sing and that adds joy to their group it's so much more in depth than if they had just like gone in everyone had succeeded and we just had like Oh, some cool action scenes of like Charlie shooting someone or, Char- or you know, Samir throwing a grenade or something. Well, even though we got little bits of those moments, it is so much more powerful to the audience when we see when we see much more in-depth character traits that instead of showing us something cool, they show us something deep about the characters, I think. You know, we're seeing Charlie sing, we're seeing Samir talk about how he's the wrong color, talking Chief talking about how he doesn't have a home. Those moments for me are like a big part of the heart of this movie. They deconstruct those kind of stereotypical band, you know, kind of gang, kind of team thing into something much more character focused. And I think it's so much better because or else we would have just gotten the Howling Commandos again. We're like, yeah, we're cool guys and we're gonna go shoot stuff and that's all we do. But they served as a really good like harbinger or um, vehicle for uh, deeper parts of the theme in this movie. One of my very favorite parts of Samir's story is first him telling Diana, you know, I wanted to be an actor, but I'm the wrong color. And she reacts in a way that just because that has never been a factor in her life, she doesn't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. She doesn't understand why he couldn't act. And her inability to understand that prejudice helps him to then think that he can do it. And later on in the movie, he instantly volunteers to play mm-hmm. the part of Steve's uh, chauffeur. Yeah, I he love that. He's gonna be able to get. What you forgot well. my you forgot my invitation? <laughs> That's one of my most I, favorite parts. Absolutely, and it's something that he that Diana has an effect on people throughout the movie, where her lack of understanding of prejudice and why it would exist mm-hmm. is why people are able to move forward in their own stories. Yeah, the same is true of Etta Candy. She um, considers herself like this. Just, oh, I'm just the secretary or whatever, and then um, she's given this responsibility of leading the, the team. She's she's the home base. She's the one who's saying, "Okay, you need to go here," and she's nervous about it. But I think from watching how confident Diana is, she realizes. I can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, your point about um, Diana's um, uh, 
kind of naive sense of justice. You know, we talked about that earlier, but I'm glad that it was not just completely like, no, this is how things are. It showed both that her sense, uh, her naive sense of justice had to, one had like parts with like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense where you just apply a black or white kind of viewpoint to this thing. You know, this is good. This is bad. And other sense where it developed. So it was more nuanced in that it wasn't just kid. You need to learn how war works and what the real world is like and blah, blah, blah. We, it was, it was, it, it went beyond that and it became, okay, she's developing in certain ways. She's keeping it's She's, uh, bringing things to these people. She's showing them things that maybe they've forgotten and they're showing her things as well. And it became a very organic kind of interchange of ideas throughout, I think. One thing that I thought was so funny and interesting was that, well, first of all, they never say the phrase Wonder Woman. They yeah. never characterize her as Wonder Woman. But I saw so much wonder in this movie, both from everyone when she comes into this world and she's got so much power and mm -hmm. everyone's staring at her and is amazed by her abilities and is in awe of her. And then she is going around and she thinks that despite the fact that the world is maybe uglier than she thought it was, she finds these pieces of wonder. She finds snow and ice cream and a baby. Ice cream. All of these things are so exciting to her mm -hmm. and so new. And I, I just love that exchange of, you know, even in the darkest of times, you can still find this beauty in the world. And also the duality of her to be able to, in one, in two sentences, she can go from, I need to get clothing that I can fight in, to, oh my god, there's a baby! Mm -hmm. And it's so genuine, and it completely makes sense, first of all, that she would be so excited to see a baby. She's never seen a baby before. But the fact that that is known in our culture as something that is very feminine, to come right after her saying, I don't yeah. understand your feminine clothing, I just want to be able to fight, is such a great... Juxtaposition. Absolutely. And it is a lot of what I think this movie is supposed to be about about mm -hmm. how women can be feminine and badass at the same time. One thing, I think it's very important that they showed that Diana is complicated and feminine, but also very strong. And at the same time, to show uh, all of the Amazonian women and show them as a different type of female who is mm -hmm. strong and powerful and older and still beautiful and aggressive and and all of these things that we saw from them we see in her but we also see uh tenderness and that this is what's great about showing multiple female characters in a movie is that yep. there can be nuance and you can yeah. show different versions of women yep absolutely i think it's really well we get uh robin wright's character who's you know kind of a just a badass war hero which is awesome we see hippolyta is a concerned mother we see um what do you call it? we see etta candy who's being who's trying to rise up to new responsibilities all these things that uh, we see like it the reason i liked dr poison you know a woman who's malicious and i think it further deconstructs the idea of what a woman should be in a superhero movie which the idea of wonder woman it uh, herself does anyway I'm curious, Meredith, what do you think going forward in the you know world of superhero movies, how do you think this will affect in uh, the characterization of future female superheroes? You know, I know you're a big fan of Supergirl. 
Uh, next year, we have Black and Silver coming out from Sony, um, Black Cat and Silver Sable. A uh, year after that, we have Captain Marvel. Uh, I am certain there's going to there's a rumor that Sony's trying to do like a Avengers style female like a female Avengers of only Spider-Man secondary characters, which sounds very strange, but I'd be excited for it. I'm curious what you think the critical and commercial success of Wonder Woman means for both the industry and how people are going to and how filmmakers are going to characterize. Uh, their female superheroes because not all of them are as you know have such a rich history as Wonder Woman or have as amazing traits as her or are as easy to market and it's you know I'm curious what you think this means for the future of female superheroes in the superhero boom we live in I would also I, I would actually argue that Wonder Woman's long history makes her a little more uh, inaccessible to write about mm. because um, so many women know of the concept of Wonder Woman, but they don't know the story and they feel like they'll be left out if they go see this movie. I think what I know will happen is, or now that Wonder Woman has become such a success, none of the movie studios have the ability to make that excuse anymore. None yeah. of them can say, oh, well, we've never had a female director before and therefore we can't have female directors because they might lose us money and we can't mm -hmm. have a female-led story because if we do it might be unsuccessful and at this point they've run out of excuses and it's ridiculous and what i hope <laughs> i really hope happens is if we're gonna use the same logic that was applied to this movie of if this movie is bad, we will never get another female movie, female superhero. Mm -hmm. That was that was the stakes for this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And if that is true, the opposite should be true. Mm -hmm. We should get dozens of female superheroes. Like, yeah. you can see it. We've been clamoring for it. The reason that 52% of the audience was female for this movie was because we are so desperate for a female superhero. And the fact that it was great is just icing on the top because we are so interested in seeing and taking our little girls to go see movies like this to see and taking our little boys to see movies like mm -hmm. this the fact that you can inspire children with a strong female is so important and not only is it not only is it important it's entertaining the mm -hmm. fact that this movie had humor that was specifically oriented towards women was genuinely one of my favorite parts. When they made jokes on the boat about <laughs> about sex and about him, they were when she said that males aren't necessary for sexual pleasure, the theater I was in yeah. erupted in female laughter. And it was so enjoyable. And and I finally felt like, this movie is for me. Mm -hmm. This is why this is existing. This isn't for men. Like, men can enjoy this movie, absolutely, just as I can enjoy a Fast and the Furious movie. But it's not for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that studios, if they want to make any money in the future, need to realize that. Especially DC. Patty Jenkins just saved the DC universe single-handedly she, she absolutely like, did it's unbelievable had this movie not been good i would not have seen justice league but i plan to see it now because you know who's gonna be in it wonder, wonder woman. woman 
you know, any Patty Jenkins movie from here on out, I'm planning on seeing. Dude, so, same give here. Give her the sequel. Yeah, oh, I'm sure she's going to get it. She's going to get whatever she wants going into <laughs> negotiations because they didn't. They only had her for a one-picture deal, so she's going <laughs> to go in yeah. there, stroll in like Macklemore, and just take all their money. And isn't Gal Gadot only, or Gal Gadot only signed up for three movies? She signed up for Justice League, but, I mean, they're going to sign her, right. no question. She for... needs to do a sequel. She's got to get a price bump, too. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. So uh, I think that's going to do it for this discussion all about Wonder Woman, its impact, its story, and the feminist uh, themes that run through it. So coming up on the feed, we have our good friend of the show, Loring, wrote in all about The Last Jedi, and he was saying that he was super excited that it is not going to be Empire Strikes Back 2.0, which, you know, the idea of like the stereotypical second dark chapter or whatever, and kind of falling into the same plot points, because obviously the main criticism of The Force Awakens was that it was very similar to A New Hope. I'm curious what you think about this, Meredith. What are you hoping for uh, The Last Jedi to be in regards to how it fits in the saga? What kind of film it's going to be if it's not going to be Empire Strikes Back 2.0? Well, I'm very curious how it's going to structure itself because traditionally three-part stories have to go from origin to, you know, a stumble in the journey Mm -hmm. and then the conclusion. You have to, you know, the way that we tell stories is often following the hero's journey. And I'm very curious how they might change that and still keep any kind of um, structure that is easy to follow. Um, there are definitely story points that I want to see hit. I want to see what happens to, um, Poe and I want to see him come back and become a, um, a larger part of the the trio. Mm -hmm. And I want to see Ray become a stronger, she's technically not a Jedi or is she, is she the last Jedi or is, is Luke, you know, who, who are we going to say is the last Jedi, but I, I want to see her train. I want to become. I want to see her become more powerful in the Force, and I want to see. I'm very excited to see the scenes with Carrie Fisher that were filmed, mm-hmm. um, and I would like to see Finn come back and and return to Ray and see if if anything is there. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like there was some romantic tension on his side, at least that might be more explored or maybe they might go in the direction of, of my, my OTP yeah. ship <laughs> Poe and Poe and Finn, but same. Uh, those are, those are the things that I would like to see, but I'm not sure how I would like them to structure it. And I, I'm excited to be surprised. Yeah, absolutely. I think Ryan Johnson is the man to give us those kind of surprises. What I'm hoping to see is I, I have the feeling that this is going to be a darker chapter. I think it has to be. I just don't think it's going to be dark in the same way. Empire strikes back is going to be, I have, you know, I don't think we're going to see, um, I really hope no one loses a limb. I hope we don't go through back or if they do, they like lose a leg rather than a hand. (laughs) I think let's just change it up for once. Um, or just like a one finger. Oh, you can't lose your eyeball via like a lightsaber fight though in a way and not die. No, I disagree. Well, (laughs) um, the thing that I'm really hoping to see, and I've discussed this with a few people off the podcast is 
a real deconstruction from Luke, and I think they could do this in a meta way, of the original kind of Jedi ideal is you can't love, you can't do this, and passion can lead to darkness, love leads to darkness, and anger and hate and stuff. And what I'm hoping they do is focus um, more on what I think the point of the prophecy was from uh, the Phantom or from the prequels of the idea of like bring balance to the force and balance in my opinion means recognizing light and dark and what I got from the Jedi and this is and I think the meta aspect could be that they're kind of not condemning the prequels but taking something that was in the prequels that was meant to just be like look these are the Jedi ideals they're hard but they're you know the right thing to do and deconstructing those and recognizing hey trying to make yourself pure of hate and anger is like not a mentally healthy thing to do because everyone has that and I think or possible yeah or possible and I think you know, when I was a little kid thinking like, I want to be a Jedi when I grow up, then I'm like, oh, but then I can't ever like hang out with girls or, or you know, all this, you know, this very, in my opinion, kind of restrictive um, mindset and really restrictive lifestyle that I think I would really love to see um, that Luke never really got to encounter. We got, um, you know, because he uh, trained after Order 66, I would love to see him kind of reject the ideas of like, Yoda and Mace Windu that you need to and the whole Jedi Council that you need to live your life this specific way because what that kind of reminds me of is like um, you know like really repressive religion or stuff like that that you know you can't do this you can't act this way and I'd love to see him kind of say like no that's not the right way to live and that doesn't lead to balance in the force maybe just maybe using Snoke or Kylo Ren as an example to say hey everyone says yeah he brought balance to the force well did he? It just seems like the light side one uh, and recognizing that there needs to be light and dark, not necessarily at war with each other, but in harmony because the entire emotional spectrum of, you know, light and dark is available to everybody. And that's a very Buddhist thought. And I think that would, um, for me, I think that would both kind of be like, yeah, that all that prophecy, prophecy stuff in the prequels that we threw in probably wasn't like, you know, if you tried to live that way, probably wouldn't be the healthiest thing. And to me, I think that makes it a more nuanced, more self-aware kind of prophecy. I really hope they go full Jedi Bendu and that, you know, because there's the whole thing of Sith on one side, Jedi on the other, and Bendu's the one in the middle from the extended lore. So that's what I'm hoping for. And I think it could be, a really different kind of dark chapter and that it's less about, you know, our heroes find out who they are in the first one and they're going to, you know, kind of um, knowing who they are, kind of fail in what they're doing or come across against someone bigger or stronger or whatever. And this like re-examining the foundations of what a lot of this is based on, um, even just in terms of lore. So I, I'd be really excited to see that. I think that would uh, be pretty poignant. And I think, um, could do it in a way that doesn't that one kind of says yeah some of the stuff in the prequels wasn't good but maybe some of the stuff in the original trilogy is good and that you know because Luke didn't go down that kind of restrictive path in a sense so that's what I'm hoping for I do think that's a very rich uh, subject matter to dive into and especially when you introduce a religion into a story Ideally, you're going to face all of the other factors that happen mm -hmm. in a religion, misinterpretation and, um, you know, twisting the concepts of the religion to meet your own ends. Yeah. And the ability to play with that would be a, a great direction to take this world in in order to understand um, that it's more complicated, whether or not the Star Wars universe wants to make things more yeah. complicated. They're traditionally known for being pretty black and white um mm -hmm. but it it would be a very interesting direction to go into yeah 
I absolutely agree. So uh, let's move on to Comically Irrelevant, our recommendations for this week. Meredith, what is making you irrelevant this week? So on Thursday, I went to a live performance of another podcast that I enjoy listening to called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. It is a a, sort of a religious podcast, um, not in the sense that it connects to any particular religion. It's led by a British gay Christian and a Jewish atheist humanist. Mm. Um, And the two of them take the text of Harry Potter chapter by chapter and apply a theme to it and try and examine that chapter through a theme and try and understand um, what is this chapter telling me about the concept of truth, for example. And then they will take a religious practice of, of examining text, whether it be Christian or Jewish or uh, Islam, they take these concepts and they apply them to a portion of the text and try and find out what it's telling them to do, how, how they should examine themselves and the world in a different way. And it's a great way of re-examining the Harry Potter story. So I I'm will listen to that. <laughs> and John, what's making you irrelevant this week? This week, I have dived in deep into the show The Leftovers, uh, which is, man, is it dark, but man, is it great. I just finished uh, third or fourth episode of the first season. I know it just ended its third and final season a couple of weeks ago, so for me, this is the perfect time to just watch it from uh, start to finish. I'm loving it. It is incredibly dark. I am really excited to see uh, what it's all about. The whole pro- uh, the whole foundation, the whole lore of it is that uh, at one point, three years before the uh, show starts, 2% of the world's population disappears completely. There's no correlation, nothing, no one knows why, how, whatever, science, religion, whatever. Uh, but it is really cool, really dark, and it examines a lot of really cool themes and does it in a really gripping way. So that's what's making me irrelevant this week. And that is our show. If you want to reach us on Twitter, I'm at John Lampus. I am not on Twitter. Get a Twitter, Meredith. Uh, and you can email us at alapodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at alapodcast. And we are a very proud member of the Batman Podcast Network. Check out the whole Bat family at batmanpodcastnetwork.com. Our show was produced this week by Meredith Miller and John Lampus. Mixed this week by John Lampus and Meredith Miller. Directed by Meredith Miller and John Lampus. Written by Meredith John and Lampus Miller. Our online support comes from John Miller and Meredith Lampus. Our research assistants are John Lampus, Ian Fox, and Meredith Miller. Catering by Ian Fox, John Lampus, Ryan Anderson, Loring Brock, and Meredith Miller. And our logo was designed by Kyle Dibbell. Find his work at behance.net slash D-Y-B-D-A-L-K. Plus, our theme music is brought to you by our friend Patrick Monahan. As always, subscribe to A Little Anarchy on SoundCloud and iTunes, where we welcome you to rate us well, rate us often, and make sure to tell your friends. See you next time on A A Little Little Anarchy. Anarchy.